Good morning, everybody. My name is David Cassidy. I'm the lead pastor here at Spanish River Church. It's a joy to be with you here. And if you are new with us today, we're in the middle of a series on a letter the Apostle Paul sent to a church in the ancient world in a city called Ephesus, a group of people who were not unlike ourselves, we've discovered. And I want us to pick up this morning on an important pivot point in this letter where Paul turns from the declaration about what God has done and begins to explain to us the implications of what that means for us now that we are believers in Jesus and followers of Jesus. So it's vital for us to grasp how he does that, why he does it when he does it. The title of this series is Beyond Imagination. That comes from a verse in chapter 3 where Paul, we've just noted this as we prayed together, says God is the one who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond everything we could ever ask or imagine. And he's been telling these Ephesian believers the wonder, the astonishing, amazing wonder of the good news of what God has done in Jesus and so, of course, his heart caught up with wonder, Paul begins with praise. So as you read through Ephesians, you're going to find it opening with this great majestic anthem of thanksgiving to God the Father for choosing us in Christ and giving us the adoption of sons, praising God the Son, Jesus Christ, for shedding his blood for the redemption that he provides for us at the cross, praising God the Holy Spirit for the protection that he gives us because he has united us to Christ and seals us in him until the great last day. And then Paul prays for this church. He doesn't just praise God and worship, but he, as we did just now, prays, kneels, bows his heart before the Lord. He says, I'm praying, Lord, that you would open the eyes of this church to the wonder, the astonishing wonder of the call that you have on their lives. And then having worshiped and having prayed, he begins to teach them. And he doesn't start with go and do this. He starts with the gospel. He talks to them about what God has done. He talks about the cataclysmic, terrible fall that has come upon the human race. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, he writes in chapter 2. But then, having noted that bad news, which is comprehensive in its impact on our lives, every aspect of our being affected by that terrible moment in history when humankind shook its fist in God's face and said, we'll be our own gods, make our own rules, make our own standards, and go our own way. He says, despite all of that and the death the pain, the misery that that brought upon ourselves. God looked upon us in mercy, and he said, I'm going to intervene in that situation. I will not let my people go off into destruction. And so he says, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And so we were dead. We were made alive. We're united to Christ. And he says, by grace, you've been saved through faith in Jesus. And the faith, even that faith, is not from yourselves. It too is a gift from God. So our only boast is not in anything we have done. Our only boast is in what Jesus has done at the cross, who when he died for us, canceled out the debt we owed for the sins we'd committed, 
But that doesn't mean he just brought us back to zero, like, okay, all debts are gone and you're back to zero. No, Paul goes on to say that the riches of the grace of God are that the righteousness which belongs to Jesus, his perfect righteousness, is now imputed or counted to us. So you're not just brought back to zero, that would be great, but now you have riches in Christ beyond your wildest dreams. And that's why Christianity does not begin with a big do, but with a big done. With Christ on the cross saying, it is finished. That's how Paul begins this letter. And he says, the alienation that we have with God has now been rectified. We are reconciled to him. The fragmentation in our own human relationships between Jew and Gentile and male and female and all the kinds of barriers that we put up, all of those are now rendered completely out of the way because Christ has not only reconciled us to God the Father, but we are now reconciled in one body together in Jesus. And God has given us his grace to serve him. And it's only after noting all of those things that Paul then begins to talk to them about the implications of what has taken place. I fell in love with the book of Ephesians because of that order. That God doesn't start with, do this. God begins with, here's what I've done. See, every religion in the world and our entire culture and society is built on the idea of attainment and qualification. If you have the right grades and you get the right SAT and ACT score, then you can get entrance into the right university. You can have the right job if you have the right stuff on your resume. And then you can get into that career path, into that corridor of power. Then you can buy the right car, get into the right house, have the right set of friends. Everything is built on attainment. And all the religions in the world will teach you, however they define God, whether personally or impersonally, that if you do this and this and this, and they have a long list of the things you must do, if you will just do all of these things, then perhaps God will have mercy on you, or you will know God, you will come to nirvana, you will come to some great spiritual state if you will just do this and this and this and this. But the Christian faith is the exact opposite. And says a relationship with God is not based on a righteousness you attain, it's based on a righteousness you receive, a gift. God just says, I love you. I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm sending my son to pay the penalty for your sins, and you are now in me. Years ago, an ancient, a, 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 a messenger of the ancient Christian faith who was Chinese named Watchman Nee published a little book on Ephesians, the title of which outlines this. The title of the book, Overview of Ephesians, just went like this, Sit walk, stand. And he begins by noting that the whole first part of Ephesians talks about what God has done. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Not you will be seated, but you are seated. I know you feel like you're just sitting in your living room if you're watching online or you're just sitting in church and you wish I'd hurry up and finish. And, but you are actually seated with Christ right now in heavenly places. That's your position. And then Paul goes on to talk about how you live as a believer, walking. And then he comes to the fact that we are in a lifelong conflict. 
And so we have with these dark principalities and powers this ongoing battle, and we must learn to stand. But Paul begins not with the standing and not with the walking, but with your position. You're seated in Christ. That's a finished work. Paul summarizes it this way in chapter 2. He looks back and he says, you were. And then he talks about God's intervention and he says, but now. And then he begins to talk about the implications of that. And he says, so then. You were, but now, so then. Would you say it with me? You were, but now, so then. So that is where we are in this letter. So then. Now that you are the recipient of this incredible mercy that God calls you righteous, he calls you his son. As you sang earlier, I'm a child of God, that's who I am. It's not what you're going to achieve, it's what you've received. Now that that's true, what does that mean for how you live? And the word Paul uses to describe that is this verb, walk. Walk. Of course he used that word because ancient Christian faith was simply referred to as the way, a way of living. So if you look with me in chapter 4, we're going to look at a few different verses here. Then we're going to come back and unpackage a, a large chunk of this. But look at chapter 4. Just want to give you this bird's eye view, this midsection of Ephesians. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. And then look at verse 17, Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, giving his life for our life. And then look down a little bit further in chapter 5. Verse 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then just a little bit further on here in chapter 5, verse 15, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So Paul uses this word walk repeatedly here in this middle section of Ephesians. He said, you're one of God's own beloved people, so here is the, the way your life is going to be transformed. This is the way you're going to be shaped. It's a whole new way of living. You have a whole new identity, and because of that, you have a whole new way of living. He says, I want you to walk worthy of the calling that you have, worthy of the wonder of God's grace in your life. So he says that walk looks totally different than the society around you. You don't walk anymore the way everybody else has been walking, and you learn to walk in love and in light and in wisdom. We're going to simply look at this first section here in verses 17 through 32 of the contrast that Paul makes between the walk of the believer and the society from which we have been redeemed and rescued. 
Look at it again in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Now notice he doesn't say that's not the way you learned about Christ. He says that's not the way you learned Christ. To become a Christian does not mean that you learn something about Jesus. It means you receive the person of Jesus. And you begin to follow him and live in him. Why is that vital? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, in terms of the witness of the Christian in the world. An Anglican bishop asked Gandhi what he thought of Jesus. And he said, I like your Jesus very much, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians do not look much like your Jesus. Now, when I read those words, I'm pierced, and I think, yeah, Cassidy, you don't look much like Jesus. But you see, you and I have been called to be conformed to the image of Jesus, as we'll see shortly in this passage. You and I have been called to be transformed and to be made like him. But there's a particular reason for that. It's not only so that Jesus is seen in the world, it's so that the longings of our heart that are echoes of God's own creation in our lives finally find their real meaning and fulfillment. You see, the world is bent on a walk, a path, that cannot fulfill them and make them happy. It will leave us empty every single time. Listen to what Jesus said. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. Take my yoke upon yourself and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find, listen to this, rest for your souls. Now, I'm telling you guys, if there's anything that characterizes our contemporary culture, it is restlessness. It is weariness. Everyone is in constant pursuit of the dream. Constantly going after and utterly restless. Cannot cease working. Cannot do anything that would take away their pursuit of the great identity. The great achievements. To have the wealth they need to buy the house. To have the car. To have the right circle of friends. And what does it leave you with? Weariness. The soul was made for more than a chunk of metal and stucco. You were made for glory and communion with the creator of the universe. You were made to be a reflection of Jesus Christ in the world. And the pursuit of all of these things will only wear you out. But when you learn Christ... Rather than the way of the Romans, your life is changed. 
you find rest for your soul. Paul says you don't walk anymore the way the Gentiles walked. And he describes it. Futility of mind. Restlessness and callousness of heart. And the Romans were. Jesus said, take my yoke upon yourself and learn of me. I am meek and lowly of heart. The Romans despised meekness as weakness. You'll never see a Roman writer praise humility. Roman historians, whether we're talking about Tacitus or Suetonius or any one of them, praise Roman virtues of might and power and wealth. That society was no different than so much of what passes for North American society. The accumulation of access to power, the accumulation of the weapons we need to both protect ourselves and go after others, the accumulation of wealth and the use of what we have to get ahead and put other people down. And yet the Christian is called to live a completely different way. You don't walk in the Roman way anymore. You walk in the Jesus way. You walk in the Jesus way. What does that look like? Well, he says, this is verse 22, put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off and put on. Now Paul's using an important metaphor there. It's clothing language. It's the same language that's used for taking off something dirty and putting it over here in the hamper and putting, taking something new and putting it on. This is who you are. Therefore, a different set of clothes is what you should be wearing. Now, clothing in the Bible is really important. It's important to all of us. I mean, we know how important clothing is. Mark Twain said, Clothes make the man. Naked people have never had much influence in the society. (laughs) Well, except, of course, for our first parents, who in their nakedness did have a disastrous influence on society. But as soon as they had, they knew they had to get a new set of clothes. And they made it themselves. They covered themselves with fig leaves. And God says, that wardrobe will not do. And he made them clothes. And all through the rest of the Bible story, you find God manufacturing and distributing and clothing his people. He clothes them with splendor and glory, for he himself is clothed with light. And so Joseph's coat of many colors tells his brother he has a special relationship with his father. And Aaron and his sons, they have special robes as priests that say they have a special relationship with God and the temple and with the people of the Lord. And John the Baptist, with his unique clothing, says, I am coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And Jesus shows up with a seamless robe that is dipped in blood, the scriptures say, a robe of righteousness which he then bestows on us. 
You see, what Paul says is it's time to put off your old wardrobe and put on something new and completely different. The global fashion industry, by the way, is a $2.5 trillion trade. On average, Americans spend $161 a month on clothing. The most is in New York City, where they spend an average of $360 a month on clothing. It's not their fault. That's just how much stuff costs in New York. But no matter how great, by the way, men and women spend the same in the United States on shoes. I just wanted to clear up that myth. It's just that women's shows are so much less expensive, they can get 25 pairs for my four. But no matter how great we think our sartorial splendor is and how much we're willing to pay for it, there is no more beautiful garment than the righteousness of Christ, which he paid for with his own blood, and he robes us in it. And then he says, now here's what this new life looks like. And what Paul does is he goes through this next passage and he begins to tell us what this whole new walk looks like. It looks like you have an a new mouth and new hands, and it's all because you have a new heart. Look at this, chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, putting away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity for the devil. Speak the truth. He will go on to say, speak the truth in love. Literally, he says, be truthing in love. Some people love, and so we don't, yeah, we're not going to tell you what I really think because I don't want to hurt you. Other people are big on the truth, and they turn it into a hammer. They weaponize the truth and hurl it against people. But the Christian is truthing in love. Putting away deceit because Jesus was the truth teller who wept over those to whom he told the truth. Your life needs a fresh start, Nicodemus. You need to be born again. And he said that to a man who was religious, a man who was a professional theologian, an expert. A man who was politically connected and economically well off. He said to that man, who everyone would have looked at and said, you have it all. He said to that man, you need to be born anew. Because all of the accumulation of all of the wealth and all the power and all the knowledge and the wisdom, even, even religious theological knowledge, won't save you, Nicodemus. He told him the truth because he loved him. He truthed him in love. The Christian vernacular, the Christian vocabulary is transformed. You see verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. That's this gift of encouragement and kindness that what comes out of our mouth is seasoned with grace. It's wonderful to be around people who will encourage you and bring you life. My eighth grade basketball coach, as I was running laps around the court, he used to say to me, he'd yell at me in front of everybody, Cassidy, you're fat, but you're slow. 
He had no encouragement in him at all. When I lived in London, we lived apart, across from a park in, in Denmark Hill, and I decided I, would, I was young, you know, I, I'm going to take up running. I'm going to try this running thing, you know. I'm going to try it again. So I went out jogging, and every day I passed this guy reading a newspaper on a park bench because it was back in the days of newspapers. I know some of you haven't heard of those, but it was back in those. It was at age, it's like hieroglyphics. It's like papyrus. It's, it's called a newspaper. Anyway, and it was very popular in Great Britain in the 1980s. And this guy's sitting there reading this newspaper, and I'd go past him and he never looked up and I said hi on the first morning and hi on the second morning never responded fifth morning I'm going past and he just looked up and he said I see we're working on form not speed <laughs> I never went back that was it I never went back my friends what is grace is it grace coming out of our mouth does it build up or does it tear down it's a new mouth but it's also new hands now let me remind you, he's writing to Christians, and he says, let the person who steals, verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. You Christians who are still shoplifting got to knock it off. And you say, well, really? I mean, Christian shoplifters? Really? You know, people in church don't do crazy stuff like that. You should become a pastor. I got stories, let me tell you. No, no, no. See... Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You and I forget who we are. And we wander off like prodigals to our own pig pens. And the Father waits for us to come home. And he showers us with his love and his kisses. And he, Paul's not saying, again, remember, this is your position. You're a child of God. He doesn't say, if you stop stealing, you will become a child of God. He says, child of God, you're a child of God. So stop stealing. Stop robbing God. Stop robbing other people. Stop being a shoplifting, tax-evading, tithe-not-giving, robbing person. What are you doing? You can't live that way anymore. In fact, I want you to do something different with your hands. I want you to labor so you have something to share with others. What's the purpose of every good endeavor, the careers that we're in? You see, we think the reason that we have the work that we are in is so that we can acquire. I want to acquire as much wealth as I can, as much stuff as I can, because he who has the most toys at the end wins. But you've never been to a funeral yet where you saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Acquire, acquire, acquire. And we get our stuff and we hold it tight and we think we've got it when the truth is it's just got us. And Paul says, open your hands. Do this, work with your hands, not so you can clutch what you get, but so you can give what you've received. Your hands are different. Your walk is different. Your life is completely different. The Romans valued power and sensuality. They, they valued pride and arrogance and acquisition. And Paul's saying, you guys live in a completely different way. Why? Because you have a new heart. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another 
tender-hearted. There it is. What does this new heart look like? Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Why do we forgive our children? Why do we as children forgive our parents? Why do we forgive our colleagues, our brothers and sisters? Why do, why do we stop walking out on one another and start walking towards one another, even when we've sinned? Because God did not walk out on us. No, he walked towards us. I've heard the cry of my people. I've seen their affliction. I've come down to deliver them. We forgive each other because God in Christ forgave us. How? Quickly. God forgave us. Quickly. The last time you went to the Lord and said, I confess my sins, I need forgiveness, he did not say, well, I'll think about it. Let me ponder for a while. Really, you did that again? That's not what God does. He quickly forgives. He completely forgives. He holds back no mercy, and he blots it out as far as the east is from the west. He casts it behind his back completely, quickly. This is what God does. And in costly fashion to himself. Quickly, completely, costly. God forgives because forgiveness is not something God just goes, well, of course I forgive. No, forgiveness, if it were given without any sense of justice, would be a denial of God's holiness. But God goes to the cross himself, and he bears the penalty of our sin, and that's why we're forgiven. God does not look at the sinner and just go, oh, yeah, sure, I forgive you. John Stott said, to us, forgiveness is the plainest of duties, but it is to God the most profound of problems. How can God, who is holy and just, forgive people of their high treason and their rebellion? How can he deny his justice to bestow mercy? He denies neither. He fulfills the law's just demands by he himself becoming one of us. And bearing in his own body on the cross the full penalty for our sins. So that the price of justice is fully paid. And then, then, he bestows rich mercies on our lives. And here's what God says. Give that same kind of forgiveness to each other. To your family. To your brothers and sisters here at Spanish River. Uh, can I just say this? to your pastor. I'm going to need it. You're going to need it. Give it to your colleagues at work. Give it to your neighbors nearby because they don't need to hear you go, I want justice. They need to see your life say, here is mercy. Some of you have been praying for my golden retriever, Max, who disappeared on the 4th of July to come back. He was lost. You know what? He was found day before yesterday. He was found. He was hiding in a crawl space in another house. And, and, and they brought him in. They turned him into the animal's wellness center. And they came and they, and they called me. And I got down there and I 
walked into the cage where he was. I said, Max. And he said, Dad. And he's just crying, whoa, whoa, you know, and got him out, and I'm hugging him, and I'm kissing him, and he's kissing me, and I'm like, you're so great to see you, and you are covered with ticks. And we spent the next four hours with tweezers getting that stuff off of him and shaving him down and cleaning him up, and the whole time he's just wagging his tail, going, clean me up, clean me up. I mean, I do not know what demons look like. But I believe ticks are the template, okay, for who they are. And you know what? He's, he's ugly. He's not presentable in public yet. He really is embarrassed by how bad he looks. But I'm telling you, friends, he's home. He's happy. And he's getting his, he's getting his act together. You know what, my friends? That's, that's where a lot of us are this morning. I want to tell you something. God is so glad you're home. And he's getting all the darkness out of your life. Cleaning up your mouth. Cleaning up your hands. Unclenching your fists. Cleaning out your heart. Giving you a whole new walk. Why? Because you matter to him. And so does this world. Years ago, one of my heroes, C.S. Lewis preached an astonishing sermon called The Weight of Glory at St. Mary's Church in the High Street in Oxford. And he said this, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or deeply about that of his neighbor. The load, the weight, the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back a load so heavy that only humility can bear it and the backs of the proud be broken. It is a serious thing, he said, to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you meet, if at all, now only in a nightmare. And all day long, in some degree, we are helping one another to one of those two destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. My friends, in this passage, Paul says we're being restored to the image of God. Every human being is an image bearer of God, but that image has been vandalized. It's been painted over. It's been chipped away at. Sin and the devil and all that is entailed in darkness has smeared the image of God. But God in his mercy comes along to restore the beauty of what was lost. That's what he's doing in your life right now. That's what it means to walk as a believer, to get up every day pre-penting, not waiting for the end of the day to repent, but to get up every day and say, Lord, I need you. Wash me, cleanse me, change me. And then to look at your neighbors and say, the mercy I've been given, I have for you. I will give you the same mercy. 
And this morning, your heart may have malice, and your mouth may have lies, and your hands may be clenched in greed. But if you're a believer, the Lord is going to work in your heart and clean up your mouth, and He's going to pry your fingers open by His grace. And He's going to help you to give to others the mercy that He gave you at the cross. Aren't you glad God's had mercy on you? Amen. Let's give it to others. Lord Jesus, change us, transform us. Take the vandalism of your image in our lives and heal it. And then help us to share that mercy with everyone we know, everywhere we go. For Jesus is our Redeemer. And all God's people said,